Father, you are a God of grace. We do stand in awe. We do stand in wonder of that grace, uh, grace that is indeed greater than our sin and, and how we need your grace now as we would desire to hear from you. Uh, we believe that your word is God-breathed. Uh, it is the instrument of your spirit. It is your voice through the written word to us. And how we would pray that uh, you would make it come alive in our hearts today. That it would minister to our needs. That it would illuminate our minds. And that it would empower our service. Uh, Lord, open our eyes now that, that we would behold wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Maybe you were thinking about this as we were singing a moment ago, but um, music really is pretty amazing if you think about it, isn't it? Think of all the different styles of music, genres of music. Um, so, so incredible. And, uh, and not just the number of styles and genres. Think about all the different things that people sing about. You know, if you're just flipping through the radio station or you've got it going on your, your phone, um, lots of different subjects that people sing about. What do you hear when you hear music? You know, as I listen to all different types of music, I, I hear people singing about two main things. And maybe you've noticed this too. People love to sing about what they love. Have you noticed this? They love to sing about what they love. That, that's the whole love song genre. That's why people sing about relationships. It's why they sing about having fun with friends. It's why they sing about their pickup trucks. Was, it, was that uh, 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 Joe Diffie, the pickup man? You remember that one? Uh, something about women like a pickup man. Did you know this song or am I the only one that has heard this? You can set my, my truck on fire and roll it down a hill. But I still wouldn't trade it for a Coupe de Ville, right? I mean, just people sing about what they love. People sing about their favorite team. I will not hum the Aggie War hymn right now because I will lose about half of you. But people love to sing about what they love. I think that's the first main thing. But, but quite the opposite, the other thing that you will hear if you listen to music is you will hear people sing about their pain. You hear people sing about difficulty and challenges and hard things in life like difficult relationships, like breakups, like losses, like betrayals, and like the death of a loved one. Uh, you don't need to raise your hand, but I would ask you to be honest with me in your heart. Is there a song about some sort of painful experience that you particularly identify with? It's probably on your playlist somewhere. Well, the book of Psalms in our Bible is the songbook of human experience. That's what it is. It's the songbook of human experience. And like your, your favorite Spotify channel or your favorite iTunes playlist, we would expect in the Psalms, the, the songbook of human experience, that we would find all sorts of subjects and genres and, and, and topics represented there. And that's exactly what we see. And, and, one, and just, like, 
Just like music today, one of the subjects that we see most often in the Psalms is a psalm that describes pain and difficulty and challenges. And maybe you caught it as I, as I read Psalm 55 to you a moment ago, but this is a psalm about pain and evil and difficulty and challenge. Uh, It it describes fear and confusion and dismay. And and just like we hear on the radio, a lot of that confusion and pain comes from a very, very difficult relationship. In fact, the the superscript tells us, we we noted it a moment ago, that this is a psalm of David. Uh, That helps us a little bit, but, but we don't know the historic occasion. That's one of the challenges with the psalms is we don't always know what was the background of the story. Um, we, we don't know that, but uh, I'll, I'll give you a guess at what it may have been that provoked David to write this psalm. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But, but for now, suffice it to say that David finds himself struggling and confused and fearful with the pain and challenge of some exceedingly difficult relationships in his life. Uh, the title of the message today is Finding God in difficult relationships. And I think that, that like me, you probably have navigated through some difficult relationships yourselves. Is that true? I would bet if we were to go around the, the gym here that you would say, you know what, right now, today, Pastor Keith, I am dealing with some difficult relationships. And I want to encourage you that one of the things the Bible does, and I think particularly through this psalm, is it helps us in those difficult relationships to find God. And I hope that you're encouraged in the content of what we learned today as I've been encouraged uh, to study it this week. Uh, I was telling someone earlier this week that that psalms are are poetry. They're songs, so so they're difficult to outline. This is not the book of Romans. (laughs) It's very logical and there's a... Okay, this is a poem. It's, it's, it's a song, just like you would hear on your, on your playlist. So, so rather than give you an outline that, that's more instructive, I just want to give you an outline that just sort of walks us through the, the main features of the song, and hopefully that'll help us to understand what's going on, okay? Can we do that? So, so look with me at Psalm chapter 55, verse 1, and let's look at our first heading, and we'll just, we'll just note it this way. The first thing we need to do is to understand the emotion of difficult relationships. Understand the emotion of difficult relationships. Did you catch it? Look back with me at verse 1. Listen to this. David writes this. He's singing this, right? This is a song. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplications. Now listen to this. He describes it. Give heed to me an answer, for I am restless in my complaint. And I am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. Listen to this. My heart, verse 4, is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. Like all good songs, what did David just do? He just totally drew us into the experience, didn't he? He's saying, I have nights that I don't sleep. How about you? 
I have nights that I've got a thunderstorm not going on outside my window in the springtime in Texas. I've got a thunderstorm in my soul tonight. And I'm, I, I, do you ever have this situation? I'm overwhelmingly tired. I'm exhausted. But I can't sleep. And there's these things running through your mind. Did you hear some of them? Sleepless nights, a heart full of anguish and fear. He's distracted. You know what that's like, right? There's something going on, some relational thing, and you can't focus when your kid's trying to have a conversation with you. You can't focus when you're at the office trying to work and, and you're supposed to focus on your work and that thing keeps coming in your mind. You can't, you can't take your mind off of it. That's David. He's distracted by his difficulty. He can't think straight. And, and, and as he thinks about this, this relationship issue, as we'll see in a moment, all of a sudden dread comes upon him. Dread that something is about to get really, really bad. It's going to get worse. He describes it as the terrors of death, fear, trembling, horror, overwhelming him. Fear. And maybe, and some of you have experienced this. Maybe you're going through this and it's, maybe it's not some relational thing. Maybe you're thinking, I'm going to die of this, this cancer, this, this situation that I have. But we all, we all understand that, that when we're dealing with the difficulties in life, it's a very emotional experience. And um, that, that helps us to see that th- this is not fantasy land, right? The, the Bible is not, you know, rainbows and, and, and gold streets and, and candy canes, right? Th- th- this is a real man in the same broken world that you and I live, live in, and he is struggling. Just like you and I struggle sometimes. And so the psalm draws us in by connecting to the emotions of a difficult experience. And, and we wonder, okay, well, what's going on, David? Why are you here? Why can't you sleep? Why dread? Why terror? Why fear? Why anguish in your soul? And that leads us to the next verse. He, he tells us what's going on. Look at verse 3 with me again. Look back at verse 3. Let's recognize the nature of of the first difficult relationship. You'll see this. He's going to tell us a couple of times what's going on. Right here, he's going to tell us about one difficulty, and then later on, he's going to come and tell us about a second difficulty. Okay, there's multiple things going on in his life. But look at verse 3 with me, and and hear about this first difficulty. Why is he in this state? Look at verse 3. He says, because of the voice of the enemy... Because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. And he expands on that if you just skip down now to verse 10. So just skip down, look at verse 10. He goes back to it. He says, day and night, these people, these enemies, they go around upon the walls, meaning the walls of the city, and iniquity and mischief are in their midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. You're saying, is this talking about America? No, no, no. This is talking about Jerusalem in the time of David, a long time ago. But do you hear what's going on? What do you hear as he talks about this? He's looking around his city. He's looking around his country. And what is he seeing? Violence. Deceit injustice, uh, people engaging in wicked acts, and, and, that's, and that's putting pressure on Why is it putting pressure on him? Because David is the, he's the king. 
This is his country. He's the leader. And he's looking at the people going, what's going on? And, you know, if, if you've ever been in charge of something, you know, if, if you're a leader, maybe husbands, dads, you're a leader in your home, maybe at the office you have responsibility, you have people that report to you, maybe you're an educator, you have students, right? And when you start seeing people under you struggling and even engaging in wickedness and sin, and they're starting to get out of control, that, that should bother you, shouldn't it? And so David is caught up in this. He's going, what's going on? And yet it's not just, I mean, we might say today, well, yeah, there's, there's political things going on and there's stuff in culture. I mean, we, we do not lack in our country for horrible things that are happening, right? And, and any one of those will keep us up. I, I won't ask you back in November how many nights of sleep you lost leading up to the presidential election, okay? We won't go back there. But some of you did, didn't you? But notice it's not just the, the destruction, the iniquity, the mischief, the oppression, the deceit out there. Did you know what he said? Look back at verse 3 again. He says, it's the voice of the enemy. It's the pressure of the wicked. Now look at this. They bring down trouble upon what? On me. And in anger, they bear a grudge against me. So, so we recognize, this is important, it's not just the pressure, the anguish, the difficulty of all of society's problems, although those sure get to us sometimes, don't they? David is saying there's actually people out there that are holding me personally responsible. They're holding a grudge against me. They're out to get me. And, and you know, I don't think any of you have ever been the king of a country, have you? No, I didn't think so. Okay, but, but, but you know what it's like, don't you? When someone is holding a grudge against you, you know what that's like. You've got family like that, don't you? You've got some friends that have been through that over the years. And you, and you want it to go away, don't you? you just, I just want this to be over. I, I, we struggle with the discomfort of knowing that there are people holding things against us and we can't do anything about it. That's why he's awake at night. That's why he's struggling. People that are angry, people bringing trouble, people pressuring you. So that's something of the difficulty of his relationship. Okay, so you with me? So let's review. David's sleepless nights, right? He's anguished. He's fearful. He's got this thunderstorm in his heart. He's just emotional. He's trying to get out. Why is that going on? Because there are people that are pressuring him. There are people that are holding grudges against him. He's in charge of a people that, that's getting out of control in their wickedness, and they're holding him responsible, okay? So that's where he's at. Now, now, watch this. When you and I are struggling with problems that big, we need to be very, very careful. Because, now be honest with me, what is your natural response when you have problems with people and problems with relationships and it's really uncomfortable and you're not sleeping? What do you want to do? Be honest. Okay, that's right. Do you ever want to just run away? Look at this. Look at number three. We need to identify two temptations in difficult relationships. Look at this. Look at verse six. So this is going on. He's not sleeping. Difficult relationships. Verse 6. I said, David, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. And I would fly away and be at rest. 
Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. And then the Selah just means, let's just think about that for a little bit, right? And you, and you do this. You daydream about this just like I do. I can move. I can just, I can just never, never have to deal with that person again. I can just change my job, right? That's what David's being tempted with. He wants to run away. He says, verse 8, I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. See, that's the first temptation, to run away, to isolate, to withdraw, to move, to cut off. And you know what? This is why some people pursue divorces. This is why some people haven't talked to family members in years. Because the pain of a difficult relationship tempts us to just run away. Let's, let's, let's deal with the problem by running away from it. And like you, I've been tempted to do that at times. This is often why people stop communicating. This is why people cut off relationships. This is why people defriend people on Facebook. A little modern version of how this works, right? It's what we do. It's the temptation when things get difficult, we just want to run away and forget about the relationship and start over. This is when we start thinking about that favorite vacation spot and going, you know, that'd be a great place to move. And I'll leave all my problems behind. See, David, David's not a super Christian, is he? He's just like you and me. And when these difficult problems came, he was tempted to run away from his problem. Now, now it's true, guys. It's not always wrong to flee a difficult or dangerous situation. Don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying it's always wrong to flee danger or a difficulty. In fact, Proverbs 22:3 says, "The prudent, right? The wise man sees evil and he hides himself from it." Right? And and it's not wrong to run away all the time from danger or difficulty. But the question is, before you run away, the question is, what's really motivating that? What do you, why are you running away? What's your motive in running away? I said there's two temptations, right? What's the next, what's the second temptation? Look down at verse nine. The first temptation is to run away. The second temptation is in verse nine. Look at this. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. Whoa, (laughs) what does he mean there? For I have seen violence and strife in the city. Now skip down to verse 15. He says it again. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling. It's in their midst. Dude, (laughs) he's wound up, isn't he? Do Do you understand what he just said? First temptation... When you have a difficult relationship, I want to run away. You know what the second temptation is? Get them, Lord! I want them to die alive in Sheol. Wow. What's going on here? Confuse them. Get them. Destroy them. Did you catch the illusions here? 
when he talks about confusing their tongues, what, what's that a reference to in the Old Testament? The Tower of Babel, right? Remember that where God confused the languages? Everybody spoke the same language and they were walking away from God and so God confused their languages to, to mess up their plans. So David says, you remember that, Lord? Do that to my enemies. Confuse them. Thwart their plans. And what about the second one? Let them go down alive to Sheol. Do you remember that one? Do you remember Korah's rebellion in the book of Numbers 16? You remember that where, where Korah and some men rose up against Moses? And do you remember what God did? Kids will remember this story. What what did God do? Where's where's a young theologian? You guys guys remember this story. What happened? Yeah, that's right. He got him. That's right. Um, Do you remember what happened to the ground? The ground opened up and swallowed those three guys whole. Like Like the ancient Near Eastern Sarlacc pit right here, right? See, this psalm has a touch of what we call imprecatory prayers. You guys heard that term, imprecatory? You heard that before? Raise your hand if you heard that before. Imprecatory. Imprecatory means a prayer that calls for judgment or even destruction on enemies. Now, does it make you just a little bit uncomfortable when a godly person in the Bible is calling for the destruction of his enemies? I'll put my hand up. That makes me a little uncomfortable because I go, what are we supposed to do with this? Why would he be calling for the destruction of these people that are against him? Aren't we supposed to just love people? And Well, we, we don't have time to, to get into all that, but can I, just, can I just give you a couple of tips when you come to the imprecatory Psalms? Can I give you a couple of hints on how to interpret these things? Okay, because I, I don't want this to trip us up in understanding what the Bible is saying. And there are lots of Psalms that do this. You've probably seen it before. First, here's my first tip, okay? Remember, in the Bible, when the patriarchs or the prophets or the psalmist or the king of Israel, when they speak things like this, they are often not speaking personally, right? Like this is just my own idea. They're speaking as God's spokesman. Does that make sense? So as they're praying for this to happen, it's not some personal vengeance thing, right? It's oftentimes when we hear prayers for judgment like this or pronouncements of judgment like this in the Bible, it's because they're acting as their, in their capacity as a representative of God, meaning God is the one really pronouncing judgment. Does that make sense? So when we read those, you're not supposed to go, oh yeah, that's a great thing to follow, right? Because they're acting in a sense, in their, in their formal capacity. Okay, are you with me? You're looking at me like, what are you talking about? Does that make sense? Give me a thumbs up or nod your head or, okay, okay, good. Okay, so that's the first thing you need to remember. Okay, it's not a personal request. It's a request that reflects the will of God as his spokesman. That's hint number one. Here's hint number two. Remember that men and women in the Bible, even godly people, you ready? Are not perfect. Um, you know what that means? You're not supposed to follow every example you find just because it's in the Bible. <laughs> don't, in fact, there's a lot of really bad examples you don't want to follow. 
So don't assume just because a person in the Bible, even if they're a godly person, if they're saying something, that that's something to emulate. You say, well, then, then how do we know what, what to follow in the, in the Bible and what examples not to follow? The answer is you need to go look elsewhere in the Bible to those parts of the Bible that instruct you on what's good and what's bad and then look at the example and say, is this something I should follow? Okay, so don't just assume that every example in the Bible is something to follow. Now, now having said that, it is not wrong to pray for justice. In fact, it is very right and good and godly to pray for justice. We ought to pray for justice. We, we talked in Sunday school this morning in Colossians about praying for the will of God. And we know that the will of God is for justice to prevail. God is a righteous God. He's a just God. You say, see, I don't believe that, Pastor Keith. Well, Jesus himself, in a parable he tells us about prayer of all things in Luke 18, says this, that God will certainly bring justice for his elect that cry out to him continually. Jesus is saying, that's a good thing to do. That's how we should pray. So it is good and right, guys. It is good and right to pray for justice. That's good. Second, it is not wrong to pray that God would stop and punish evil people. In fact, it is good and doing evil things. We should pray that in our families. We should pray that about our government. We should pray that about our culture. We, could, we should pray that for all the babies that die via abortion every day and dozens and dozens of other evil and wicked practices in our world. We ought to pray, Lord, stop it! Because we know those things do not reflect the heart and will of God. That's a good thing to do. And Jesus, in Matthew 23, actually does this. He pronounces woes, which are prayers of judgment upon several people in various cities that were entrenched in wickedness, okay? So, are you with me now? Sometimes the imprecatory psalms, these, these psalms that are calling for judgment, sometimes a person is acting as a prophet or as an apostle, as, as God's spokesman, right? Number two to think, remember, sometimes we shouldn't follow examples in the Bible, okay? Because sometimes they're not good. But it is good to pray for justice. It is good to pray that God would stop evil in society. Okay? So far, so good? Okay, now let's come back with that little uh, bunny trail. Let's come back to our psalm here, and let's look at what David is praying. It is good and right to pray for justice. It is good and right to pray that God would stop and punish evil. But listen, especially when the sin against us is personal, we must be very, very careful. We're going to see in a moment that there is a godly way to do it and an ungodly way to do it. And I think that's where David is. And, and you, you can push back. You can tell me you have a different opinion, and that's fine. Here's where I think David is. He's not wrong to pray for justice. But here's my question. What's his motive? What's his motive for calling for God to open up the ground and consume his enemies? What's his motive in that? Is this a prayer for personal retaliation with merely God as the agent? 
That's a good question, isn't it? And I'm going to be honest. I don't know. I don't, we, we, we can't know for sure. I'm just raising the question because, because you and I can admit as fallen people, sometimes we're praying, God, go get them. God, go take care of them. Not because we care about justice, not because we know that God is a God of righteousness, but because we want God to get them. And there may be a touch of that in David's heart as he's crying out to God to act. Okay, so I don't, I don't want to beat the pulpit on that but we at least have to ask the question. We have to be cautious. So when you're, when you're struggling with difficult relationships, be careful. You've got two temptations. Run away or ask God to retaliate on your behalf. And both of those are misguided. We have to be careful about that. Okay? Now, fourth point. Contemplate the hurt of the second difficult relationship. Contemplate the hurt of the second difficult relationship. You know, thus far in this song, we're sort of thinking, okay, David's kind of talking about wicked people in his country, wicked people in his city. And yeah, there's some people holding him personal grudges against him because he's the king. But now as we come to a new verse in the song, something really, really dramatic happens. And this in part explains why David's struggle is so difficult. Look at this. Up until this time, he's been talking to God. But starting in verse 12, he's going to turn from talking to God to talking to somebody else. Okay, so watch how he does this. Look at verse 12. He says, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. And then verse 13 starts off with an emphatic, dramatic, bold-faced, underlined point. But it is you. It is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together, who walked in the house of God amongst the congregation. Do you see now why he's struggling so much? This is not some rival political enemy. This isn't some disconnected uh, band of malcontents in his city. This is a friend who stabbed him in the back. This is a close companion that's betrayed him. This is someone he enjoyed sweet fellowship. They walk with God together. They ministered together. And we say, what happened? This person is now a source of reproach. David says he's exalting himself against me. And in fact, just look down at verse 20. It's a little bit confusing in the psalm. But if you, if you skip down to verses 20 and 21, we get a little more information about this friend that turns on David. So look down at verse 20 with me. Listen to this. David writes this. He has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. Meaning this, this person turned against his friends that were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant, meaning his promise. This person, there's some promise, some some commitment that he has violated against David. Now, look at verse 21, because I think verse 21 is what makes this so difficult. 
His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was at war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were really drawn swords. What's he saying? What's the challenge of this guy that's turned on him? Do you get it? He's saying nice things. He's relating to him. He's saying things that are wonderful and kind and praiseworthy. And then what he's, what is he doing? Right? He's stabbing him in the back. His words are pleasant. They're smooth like butter. But in his heart, he's got swords of violence toward the relationship. We would call that a passive aggressive person today. Right? What's going on here? How do you have a relationship with somebody that says one thing and acts all nice to you, but in their heart they're against you? They have violent ideas. They have uh, thoughts to, to turn against you. How do you have a relationship with somebody like that? And David said, it's the deceit, it's the mind games, it's the manipulation. They say one thing, they mean something else. We say, what's going on? Who is this? Well, there's a story in the Bible. You can find it in 2 Samuel 15 to 17. If you want to just write that down, 2 Samuel 15 to 17. We don't know for sure. But, but this, this, this could be the person he's talking about, okay? Again, not going to pound the pulpit, but it's, it's at least a likely candidate. Do you remember David's son, Absalom? You remember his son? Well, David had a counselor named Ahithophel. He was described in the Bible as, as, as David's close spiritual counselor. And if you read the story in chapter 15, 16, and 17 of 2 Samuel, you'll read about how this spiritual counselor turned on David. And he conspired against his king, his boss, but his friend. This is, this is like in the inner circle of David's friends. And he conspires against him with David's own son to kill his father and take over the throne. Now, I don't know that any of us has ever been through anything that dramatic before, but I bet that some of you have been through experiences where someone who you would have considered a friend conspired against your marriage against one of your adult children, against the faith that you worked so hard to minister to in your family, and someone comes along with an effort to undermine everything that you've done. How would you feel? Some of you know how that feels. This is betrayal of the most personal nature. You remember the story? How it ends? You know, they're coming together. They're going to go kill David. They're going to take over the throne. And at the last minute, another one of David's advisors intervenes, thwarts the plan. Ahithophel goes home and commits suicide. And his son Absalom going into battle. Remember what happens to him? 
boy needed a haircut. And he gets caught in the thicket of a tree. Pulls off, pulls off of his animal. And David's commander and chief of his army goes and puts three spears right through his heart. And you go, what a tragedy. You know, there are very few experiences in life that are more painful than when a close friend or family member turns against you. And that's where David is here. That's what's going on. Some of you know what it's like to have a spouse that opposes you or despises you or undermines you, a spouse that's difficult, maybe a spouse that abused you. Some of you know the heartbreak of a spouse that's left you. Some of you know the heartbreak of an adult child who's against you that's rejected not just your faith, but their relationship with you. They reject you as a person. You've poured out your life to help them and they view you as an enemy. Some of you know this pain not from a child, but from a parent. A parent to this day is critical of you and judgmental of you and doesn't respect you, even as an adult. And you've tried everything you know how to do, and they just view you as a problem. Some of you had friends that in some way you offended, right? You don't even know what you did, but some way you offended them, and they just cut you out of their life. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to work it out. You have no idea. Or maybe when they're around you, it's just weird, you know, weird, just cold and You're like, what did I do? Oh, everything's fine. No, everything's not fine. Everything's fine. What do you do with that? Personal betrayal is one of the most painful life experiences there is. When people that love, that you love, and often people that used to love you, now treat you like an enemy. What does this make you think of? The Son of God, Jesus Himself, betrayed by who? One of the twelve. Are you kidding? One of the hand-picked inner circle. And on the night when He institutes communion, what does He say? I just want you to know, one of you is going to betray me. In some way, this psalm looks forward to that most famous betrayal, doesn't it? What do you do? What do you do with a mess of a relationship like that? Can I show you how to meet God? Can I show you from what David writes? How do you meet God? How do you find God? How do you you work out of that? And this is where I think the, the psalm really shines, okay? Here it is. Let me, just, let me just give it to you kind of in, in rapid-fire succession because David piles up 
So much help here. Here's the main thing he's going to say, okay? Here's the main thing. Actively pursue God in your difficult relationship. Actively pursue God in your difficult relationship. You say, how do I do that? How do I do that, Pastor Keith? Well, look at what David says, first of all. He says, call out to God continually. Call out to God continually. Did you notice that from the very first verse of this psalm to the very end of this psalm, this whole psalm is saturated with what? With prayer. David is talking to God at the beginning. He's talking to God in the middle. He's talking to God at the end. When you are struggling with a difficult relationship, pursue God. How do I do that? By calling out to God to him continually. David calls out to him. But look back at verses 1 and 2. He says, give ear, give heed, answer. As he struggles with the pain of his betrayal, as he desires retaliation and judgment for God to bring them alive down to Sheol, it's like something snaps. And his focus shifts from the betrayal and his desire for their destruction, it shifts to his own heart and his own need. It's as if he asks the question wait a minute, what am I doing? How am I dealing with this? And so look at what he says in verse 16. Are you there? Look at 16. He says, here's the turn. Here's the hinge of the the song here, okay? He says, but as for me, I will call upon God. Now watch this. Evening, morning, noon. You say, those are out of order. That's because you're not Jewish, (laughs) right? The Jewish day starts when? At sundown. So it starts at evening. And then you have morning and then you have noon. We, we render our calendar a little different. But that's the right order for a Jewish person like David. So what's he saying? I call upon God. Evening, morning, noon. He's saying all the time. The spiritual lifeline of sanity. When you're struggling with a difficult relationship. Is to be in constant communication with your God. That's the point. Call out to God. Cry out to Him. And, and notice this. Look at the language he uses here. Verse 17. Evening and morning at noon, I will... What's your Bible say? I will what? Complain and murmur. Let, let me help you with that. Because again, that doesn't sound right, does it? That word complain means to Lament. You say, what's lament? Can I give you a definition? You ready? Definition. See, see, when we hear complain, that's what you do with the Crescent train when you're stopped in traffic, right? That's not what he means here. Complain is actually kind of a bad English translation. It's not, it's not that it doesn't have that. It's that in complaining in our language generally has this sort of negative, probably sinful overtone, right? But that's why the biblical word lament is better, even though you don't know what that means yet. But let me tell you what that means, okay? It means loud, enthusiastic, emotional speech. Loud, enthusiastic, emotional speech, often for help or deliverance. Okay, I'm going to say this, and, and, and you tell me if I'm wrong, okay? It's okay to be loud with God. You don't have to temper 
your emotion to enter the throne room of heaven. You can go to Him in the rawness and the difficulty and the loudness and the enthusiasm. This is not positive enthusiasm. This is like horrible enthusiasm. This is, I'm drowning, Lord, help me. And you know what God says when you're like that? Come talk to me. You don't have to filter it. You don't have to temper it. You go and you lament loud, emotional, intrusive cries for help is what God wants you to do. Notice the second word, to murmur. Now, kids, if your mom says you're murmuring, that's probably a bad thing, right? That's probably a bad thing. Would you agree? Okay. So it's not murmuring like, you know, I'm complaining. Murmuring here literally means to make a noise. It's, are you ready for this? It's moaning to God. It's moaning to, say moaning to God. Now, now think, think with me. You've done this before. You're trying to sleep. You've got all this stuff on your mind. You can't think straight. You've got this relationship problem. You can't get your mind focused. And you're, right? And, and it's all over and you're, you're fretting and you're anxious and your thoughts are racing. Are you going to put together a coherent thought to have a nice prayer to God in that moment? No, you're probably not. And God says, even if it comes out as a moan, I still want you to try. That's okay. And are you ready for this? This is normal Christianity. You see, that's kind of weird, Pastor. This is what we do when life is hard. We cry out to God in emotion, in struggle. Help us. That's what we do. What you do, listen, listen closely. What you do with the pain and hurt of difficult relationships is crucial. If you hang on to the pain of a difficult relationship, you will grow either bitter or depressed. Instead, talk to Him. Talk to Him. So that's the first thing you need to do. Call out to God continually. Number two, number two, there we go. Expect his redeeming peace. Expect his redeeming peace. Look at verse 18. And he will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. Wow, look at this. Notice verse 16. The confidence he has. He will save me, verse 16. He will hear me, verse 17. He will redeem my soul in peace, verse 18. Verse 19 says, God will act. Listen to the description here. I love this description of God. Even the one who sits enthroned from of old will act. You know what that means? Even though in those moments we feel alone, even sometimes we feel like God doesn't care or isn't listening, we can have a confidence that he will hear and he will act. Okay? So we expect that God's going to do that. Now, here's the question. How did God act to help David? How did God act to help David? Well, we'll look at the text. He uses the word in verse 16. He's going to save him, right? Meaning he's going to deliver him from the threat of his enemies. But, but notice this, and this is the verse that caught me. Look at verse 18 again. He, what's your Bible say? Redeems or buys back, we might say, in peace my soul from the war that's against me. You say, what on earth does that mean? Um, 
I don't think that David is merely saying that God's going to rescue him from his enemies, although he is saying that. He anticipates that God's going to rescue him and that he's going to live to tell about it. And we know that because of the Davidic covenant, but we'll talk about that another time. Okay? He's confident that God's going to rescue him from his enemies. But listen to me. He's also saying something else. And I think this is even more relevant for our purposes. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying that God will also rescue him. Listen. From the anguish and fear and restlessness in his own heart. See, you and I in those moments need rescue from the external threat. But what do we also need rescue from? We need rescue from the internal turmoil, don't we? You say, how did you get that, Pastor Keith? Well, look, look at this. Do you see that little word peace? Do you see it there? Peace in verse 18. Look at your Bible. Thumbs up if you've got peace. Okay, good. You got it. Okay. That's that word. You know it. What is it? Shalom. It means well-being, right? And when he puts that alongside the word nephesh, the word for soul or life, what he's talking about is not, I have peace with my enemies, meaning there's a truce, although he anticipates that. Here's what he's saying, guys, this is so good. He's saying, when you cry out to God, God can give you a peace in your soul. Even though you have difficult relationships around you. See, we need rescue not just from our external enemies. We need rescue from the internal enemy of a disquieted heart that's in anguish and fear. And David says, that's what you're going to give me. A soul that's at peace and rest. Listen, listen to me. External difficulties often create internal heart turmoil, don't they? Do they do that? That difficult relationship creates untold heartache and struggle. And, and you'll agree with me, sometimes it's that internal pain that's more difficult than the actual experience outside, isn't it? Dealing with this is harder than dealing with what's out there sometimes. And that's, that's why this psalm is so encouraging. God says, let me come and rescue you from that. See, difficult relationships often rob our hearts of peace and quiet. But when we cry out to God for help, we can trust, we can expect even, that He will restore peace to our hearts. That's a great promise, isn't it? So I, I know you're asking the same question I'm asking. Okay, how does that work? Well, we need the next verse to get how we do it. Here's how you do it. Here's how you get that peace. Number three, unload your burdens upon him. Unload your burdens upon him. And you're going to say, this sounds familiar, Keith. Look at verse 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. You say, how do I get that peace in my heart when I have these broken relationships in my life? You ready? You unload your burden upon God. You unload it. That means you stop carrying it. You stop worrying about it. You stop thinking about it. You stop trying to control it. You stop playing out scenarios and you give it to God. And you say, thank you, Lord that you're going to take care of this. I'm going to go to sleep now. And when you do that, look at this. You say, how can I do that? 
Because it says here, he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. You know what that means? This is so important. This, this, is, this is the price here. Okay? This, this is the point. God doesn't have to fix all your broken relationships before you can have peace in your heart about it. He can work a miracle of peace in your soul, though you live with those broken relationships unresolved. That's what he's saying. And how do you do it? You got to give it to him. You got to unload it to him. You got to give your burden to him. It's possible. Now, now, I, it, Peter, remember the apostle Peter? He, it, he was having his devotions in his quiet time in Psalm 55, the morning he wrote the letter of 1 Peter, right? Because you know this, this sounds like 1 Peter. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He didn't come up with that. He got it from Psalm 55. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And, and I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Pastor Keith, seriously, really honest question. Are my burdens too much for me to do that? My pain is difficult. My experience is horrible. Are you sure this will work for me? You see in your note, Isaiah 53, 4. You don't need to turn there. Isaiah 53 is about the coming Messiah. It's about Jesus. And in Isaiah 53... Isaiah writes about the coming Jesus. And listen, listen to what he says. When Jesus comes, what does he do? What, why did he die on the cross? Why did he come? What is redemption about? Listen to what he says, Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Do, do, you, do you understand that? Jesus came to take your burdens for you. He came for you to give him your griefs. He came to, to unload those things from you. Why will we not give those to him? And enjoy a peace and freedom in our heart that maybe we've never had over that broken relationship. Um, I used to sing a song in the church that we grew up in. Maybe you're familiar with the song. Uh, I don't think we sing it much here, but it was one of my favorite childhood songs. I won't sing it because I love you guys, but I will read it. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Now listen to this. Some of you know this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we will not carry everything to God in prayer. Do you hear the hope in that? Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Why? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. So take it to the Lord in prayer. What a Savior we have. That's why He came to take that off your shoulders. Will you let Him do that? 
Can I ask you a question? What are you carrying around today that Jesus is supposed to be carrying? Kids, I'm going to talk to the young theologians here for a minute, okay? So my young theologians here, can I talk to you for a minute? Your parents are going to struggle with this, okay? So your job when you see your mom and dad struggling with stuff is to remind them of Christian wheelbarrows. You do that? Christian wheelbarrows? You got it? You've helped your dad, your mom in the yard. When you push the wheelbarrow around, it's pretty easy when it's empty, right? You, 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 you do circus acts with that. You know, you're running around the car. You're playing football with that, right? What happens when dad loads it up with dirt and bricks and rocks? How is it then? It's hard to push, isn't it? And you're pushing it and you're doing this, right? You're going all over the place and it's, right? God wants us to live as Christians with empty wheelbarrows. And just like when you're working in the yard, what do you got to do? You got to go back to him, dump. Because as you go through life, mom and dad, what happens? All this stuff gets put in a wheelbarrow, doesn't it? And you got to go back and unload it to him. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Number four, assure yourself that God will handle it. Assure yourself that God would handle it. Now look at this. We come, we come back to this, this issue of what about justice? What about the pain caused? What, what, about, what about judgment? Look at this. Verse 23. But you... That's a bold-faced word there. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days. You say, wait a minute, that, that sounds like earlier when the psalmist said, you know, get them, Lord, get them, Lord. It's different. I think it's different. Here's why it's different. Because he says what? But you, God, will take care of them. You will take care of them. What's the difference between this and verse 9 and 15? Maybe nothing. I think the language is different. Here's why. In the previous verses, I think David is going a little bit too far telling God how he ought to handle things. Maybe it's misguided, but I think when he says, let them go down alive to Sheol, he might be going a little bit too far. But here, he seems to be more content that God will take care of it. What's the difference between a prayer for personal retaliation and a righteous request for God to punish evildoers? That's the question. What's the difference between a prayer for personal retaliation, I'm saying that's wrong, and a righteous request for God to punish the evildoers? Here's the difference. One arises from your hurt. The other arises from your faith. Do you see the difference? When what motivates you to say, get them, God, is your hurt, you're probably not having a good motive. Does that make sense? But if what arises, what motivates your heart to say, Lord, justice, please stop this. I know this is wrong. Is your faith that God is righteous in all his ways and, and he believes in righteousness and justice. That, I think, demonstrates a more reliable motivation. And that's what I think David is doing here. One says, I know what's best and God should do it. The other request says, God knows what's best and he will take care of it. You say, what changed? What changed between those previous uh, times where he's saying, God, get him, and verse uh, 23 here? Here's what, I think, here's what I think happened. He unloaded his burden upon God. 
You say, what do you mean? He had to unload the weight of his hurt and his burden upon God. And then he was in a better position then to ask God to take care of it. You say, what's the secret to being at peace in your heart when people have hurt you and there is so much sin and wickedness and wrong in the world when you've been abused or abandoned or cut off and betrayed? Here's the thing. You know in the end God will handle it. God will take care of it in his own way and his own time. He will handle it. And so we don't have to fret and get all upset about that. Last thing, continue to trust him. Continue to trust him. Here's how he ends the song on this wonderful note of exclamation. Verse 23, but I, right? God's got his job. He's going to handle it. It's not my job to to inflict retribution. God's going to handle that. What's my job? But as for me, he says, but I will trust in you. You know, guys, don't, don't read over that. It is so simple, but it is so much the issue. Most of the things in our life, most of the things in our walk with God come down to this one question. Will you trust God? You say, that, 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 that's too simple, Pastor Keith. What, what, what does that mean when I'm hurting with these broken and difficult relationships? Here's what trusting God means. Trust Him to do what? You trust Him to help you to deal with the pain in your heart. You trust Him by believing that He knows best, that He's working, that He's good, and He's a kind Father. It means you trust Him and you believe that you can be okay, you can even be at peace. Yes, you can even be happy in God, though broken relationships and unresolved difficulties with people you love remain. To trust God means to believe that He will bring justice and He will exact proper punishment for all the sin and evil and wrong in the world, including the things done to you. And to trust God means to believe that His timing is best and to be patient and to rest in Him. That's what it means to trust. You want the message of the song really simple? When you're experiencing difficult relationships, you can run, you can retaliate, or you can rest and trust in God to handle it. And as you unburden your soul to Him, He will give you that peace in your heart that we all need. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this psalm. Uh, Give us faith. Give us help and hope as we would apply what we've read to our lives. Lord, we, we all have painful relationships that we deal with. Help us to draw near to you and know that you will not disappoint us. Thank you for Jesus who came to bear our sorrows and our griefs, who lives, who dies, who rises again to make intercession for us. He is a, a sympathetic high priest who knows our weaknesses Thank you that he's there to help us. And Lord, thank you that you're redeeming even the hard and painful moments of life for your glory. In Christ's name.